Once upon a time, an old Buddhist guru and a famous poet were friends. The poet was very talented, but was known to be rude and abrasive. One day he came to the guru's house and he sat in a meditative pose and asked his friend the monk, tell me, what do I look like? The monk smiled and said, you look like the Buddha. The poet turned around and said, do you know what you look like? You look like a pile of elephant dung. Don't actually think he said dung, but that's, what, that's the word we're using this morning. And the monk just smiled. The poet was perplexed and he asked him, why are you smiling? Aren't you offended? I've just insulted you. What we see in others is actually a reflection of ourselves, the monk said. For those who have realized their Buddha nature, they see the Buddha in everyone. So it's appropriate today that we examine and honor the tradition of our Jewish siblings as they, they are in this process of atonement and cleansing that coincides with the end of the old year and the beginning of the new year. Rosh Hashanah, which began um, last Monday, marks the start of a 10-day period of deep spiritual significance to the Jewish people, which culminates in Yom Kippur, which will happen Wednesday. Rosh Hashanah is considered to be the anniversary of the beginning of creation, or more accurately, the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve, the literal birthday of humanity. But interestingly enough, Yom Kippur marks another very important, though kind of unrelated anniversary. Yom Kippur, which is the official start of the new year, is said to coincide with the anniversary of the day Moses received the second and final set of the Ten Commandments. So it's interesting to, to notice that the new year in the Jewish tradition is framed by these two very significant events. The birth of human beings, so the beginning of humanity, and then the beginning of human society's relationship with the creator, the covenant. So for millennia, Jews and the Hebrew people have believed that it is both a spiritual good and a sacred duty to God to participate in the High Holy Days at this time, to atone for the transgressions of the last year in order to start the new one fresh and clean in the eyes of God. This cleansing is achieved not only for the individuals who participate in the rituals, but for the entire of the community as well. Now, it's said that God begins inscribing people's fate for the next 12 months at Rosh Hashanah, but the book is not sealed until Yom Kippur. So it makes these 10 days in between very important for the whole of the Jewish people. And in a little bit, we will be participating in, in one of the many ceremonies that uh, coincide with the days of Teshuva, or repentance these days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And this ritual of Tashlit will focus on the release, the release of sin and the burdens 
from the previous year. But this is just one step in preparing the body and soul for the next 12 months. And it is a, appropriate that this ritual of Tashlik is usually uh, celebrated early in these 10 days. We know that in cleansing a community, one must first cleanse oneself. Think of it another way, in order to heal the world, or anyone else for that matter, one must be whole, be healed oneself. Releasing the negative from our own personal pasts is one way to do this. But the Jewish tradition and many others also acknowledge another part of this healing work, that of embracing the good. It's not just enough to release the bad. One must also embrace the good. <clears throat> In the Tibetan Buddhist school, there's a very specific meditation technique used to achieve a similar spiritual healing to that of the Jewish High Holy Days. It's called Tonglen meditation. I've talked about this before. I actually wrote a newsletter column about this recently. Tonglen meditation is based on the inherent truth that we are each made up of two parts. The part that is loving and the part that needs to be loved. The part of us that is loving and the part of us that needs to be loved. In this realization, we look to find those spaces within ourselves and simultaneously send out and receive love. We do this by telling and retelling our own story to ourselves, forgiving those times when we failed to live up to our own hopes, celebrating those times when we reacted with compassion rather than fear. Only once we have cultivated a deep and genuine appreciation of ourselves, Buddhist teachers would say, might we extend that appreciation and compassion to the rest of existence. Once one has found Buddha nature, one sees Buddha in everything. It is difficult, if not impossible, to cultivate compassion for others until we have found it first for ourselves. But there's a problem with this. Compassion and forgiveness can be hard. It is often much easier to react negatively, to become frustrated, to fail to hear our own, let alone another's painful truth. Currently in our culture and climate, we are separated from the natural world and each other, connected through cyberspace and cellular networks to be sure, but isolated from humanity and much of the human condition. Far too often, material possessions become the object of desire, not merely a means to live better with one another. Far too often, we hold fast to the illusion of separateness and identify other of our human siblings as they, them, those people, and not simply part of us. Whereas 200, 100, or even, even 50 years ago, life required community interaction and collaboration. 
But now we can exist for long periods of time without interacting with anyone if we so chose. Food, clothing, virtually everything we need to live is just an Amazon delivery away. Clicks on a glowing screen in character-limited messages serve for official, now even presidential, correspondence. It is easy and sometimes more efficient to close oneself off and think of the world as separate from ourselves. But the Tonglin practitioner, the monk from our story at the beginning, and and the good rabbi in this time of year would be quick to point out that many of our failings in this illusion stem from our own fears, our own doubts, our own sense of failure. If we might be hard on ourselves, we can justify impatience with others. If we cannot forgive ourselves, we need not stoop to forgiving anyone else. But the question remains, who deserves forgiveness anyway? And this is a very interesting intersection of these two faiths. The Buddhists and Hebrews agree on this, but for very different fundamental reasons. One of the pillars of understanding Tonglin compassion technique is that forgiveness is a gift one gives oneself. The person or situation that brought the pain in question might not even deserve the forgiveness you offer. But it doesn't matter, because forgiveness is all about what happens inside us. Without forgiveness, one can be stuck in anger or despair. Even if the person who caused us to despair or anger in the first place has long forgotten the injury. It says nothing about them. It says everything about us, the person offering the forgiveness. The Hebrews have a slightly different take on the same deservedness question. Now, Jews have long taken all people to be ultimately undeserving of God's love and forgiveness, yet also believe in a loving, forgiving God. Worthy or not, God bestows blessings upon us and can overlook our failings. And this alone is cause for celebration and for faith that God loves us, that the universe loves us, despite our failings, is one of those core principles of those monotheistic traditions from which we Unitarian Universalists come. Though to be sure, this principle has been expressed in varying degrees over the millennia. But ultimately, as Unitarian Universalists, we take this idea to its ultimate logical conclusion, which is if we might be forgiven for our failings, then we must also forgive. If we are loved despite imperfection, then our most sacred duty is to love in return. Or as I heard a, a Christian universalist say about the gay members of her family recently, how can I claim to love God when I cannot love the people who are right next to me? Good question. This is not, unfortunately, this is not the prevailing sentiment in the world today. We find ourselves in the midst of a national crisis regarding authority and agency of our law enforcement. We are at the apex of an environmental catastrophe that threatens 
all of us. And despite our American ability to disregard the effects of our consumption on the rest of the world and ourselves, we fail to see how it makes both economic and ethical sense to care for all of our ill, house all of our homeless, and heal all of our veterans. Because we are still too mired in our individual illusions of separateness. It is true that there is much for which we must be forgiven. But there is also much to forgive and much to change. There is anything that the season of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur teach us, it is that it is up to us to do something about it. The ancient Hebrews did not wait around for God to recognize he needed to forgive them. They actively created ritual and liturgy and ceremony around the spiritual, personal, and collective need for cleansing, forgiveness, and the release of negativity. Likewise, Tibetan Buddhists do not passively attend to forgiveness. They actively and freely offer it to themselves and to the rest of the universe in love. And finally, though neither of these traditions would necessarily agree with what I'm going to say next, I believe that the forgiveness and compassion tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and the atonement practice of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur point to a larger universal truth, or rather a universalist truth. Several millennia ago, it may have taken priests and scribes to convince a culture that we are deserving of and responsible to love. Even several centuries ago, it might have taken years of individual meditative discipline to find the oneness, the worthiness of our creation. It might have taken a fiery preacher touting the axioms of finite sin weighed against infinite redemption for us to find forgiveness for ourselves and each other, but no longer. Universalism has long held these truths to the light that we are all in this together, that our safety and security depends upon the safety and security of the whole, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and that only through loving and receiving love might we each achieve our own spiritual destiny. No longer can we disregard the environmental devastation of a pipeline in the Dakotas, the lead in our drinking water, the dangerous seismic activity caused by fracking. No longer can we turn a blind eye to the abuses of law enforcement here and around the world. No longer can we pretend that what we do doesn't affect others or that we ourselves are not subject to the effects of others' actions. No, what universalism has told us for nearly 2,000 years now is what the Hebrew and Buddhist traditions, among others, have been trying to teach us for even longer. There is no they, there is no them, there is only us. We are tied in that inescapable garment of destiny that Dr. King talks about, and that our future depends entirely on what we do in the here and now. So in the spirit of universalism, 
and the spirit of healing oneself in order to heal the world. We will now begin our Tashlik ritual. As we do, I would like us all to be thinking not only about our own needs, our own hopes, fears, and those things we wish to release from our being in preparation for the coming year, but also the love of which we are all deserving and to which we are all responsible, which will hopefully fill in us that space left open by that which we leave behind. In this, we will be cleansed. In this, we will be healed. And in this, we will be more prepared to go forth and heal the world itself. May it be so. Blessed be. And amen. <laughs>